God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not, uh, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, They would not have sin, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is they hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. For let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 69. Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. O God of Israel. For it is for your sake I have become reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. But I am afflicted and in pain. 
Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. to be here with you again today and thank you Craig for inviting me to come. You're a gracious brother. A few weeks ago when Craig and I talked about me coming I said what would be a a good topic to deal with and uh, he said well suffering in light of all the uncertainty and the changes and and, uh, just the cultural changes toward the church you know. So, um, First Peter is always a good place to go. That's why I'll ask you to turn this morning to First Peter chapter 2. And uh, I won't read it again because you've already read it. Um, but I want to talk to you this morning about the eyes of the culture, the people that are not believers. They're, they're always watching us. Now, it's a cynical eye with which they view us. They expect us to say one thing and do another. They, they're expecting hypocrisy, and, and unfortunately, we've reinforced that stereotype, you know, with the evangelical church across America. But um, the, the Apostle Peter teaches us here that um, our behavior does affect people. We either adorn the gospel or we kind of empty it with, of its effect in the eyes of people. We, we uh, either validate its claims and promises with the example of our lives and our attitudes, and our words, or we invalidate the gospel as something that's just religion that doesn't really change anybody supernaturally. So before we begin thinking through this text, I'd like for us to pray and ask the Lord's blessings as we do so. Our Father, We thank you for your word, and I thank you for your people. Uh, This morning I've already had uh, a couple of folks text me and wish me a happy 4th of July, and I was thinking, you know, I'm I'm happy being among God's people and uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper and celebrating who we are in Him and what we have to look forward to. And, And I do celebrate that today, Lord Jesus, and I pray that you'd Bless the reading of your word. May it render uh, grace to our souls. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, The apostle Peter addresses these people, of course, in verse 11 of uh, chapter 2. He he calls them beloved. um, But then immediately he, he not only reminds them that they are loved, but he wants to sort of help them locate themselves almost like a GPS, spiritually and 
and in the context of the world. And he says that he, he says uh, that he exhorts them. He says, "Brother, I, I urge you as sojourners and aliens." He wants them to think of themselves this way. Um, on Thursday, my wife had this medical procedure that required her to stay in the hospital overnight, and and uh, so I was leaving that evening out of the the parking lot of the hospital to get onto the service road to go back to Conroe where we live. It's about a 20-minute drive, and it was a time of day when there was just heavy, heavy traffic on that service road. There were about four cars in front of me. So before I got out of the parking lot, this program came on, and it was uh, by it was Adrian Rogers. He's kind of like, uh, in his speaking ability and in the poetry of the way, the symmetry of the way he puts things together, he's really artistic and and uh, fun to listen to. His voice is fun to listen to. He's just uh, an amazingly clear voice. And I, it's, it's almost, I don't want to call it entertainment because that would be sinful to listen to the reading of the Bible just for entertainment. But it still is. It's entertaining to listen to him. He's funny. All of his illustrations are, are uh, just kind of appropriate and, and, and uh, just stories, you know, just great. But as I was pulling out of the parking lot, the announcer said that Adrian Rogers was going to preach on this passage. Now, he only preached to the, from verse 11 to the end of chapter 2. But before I got out of that parking lot, it became immediately clear that he had turned this passage on its head. <laughs> he, he began, he started out um, saying, I am a, a red-blooded, flag-waving, patriotic American and all these people were just cheering, yay, you know. <laughs> and then he preached this passage as if it were a passage about patriotism. And I thought, no, no, come on, Adrian, you, you got a THD, you got all these years of experience, you know how to exegete a passage of scripture, you know that you're supposed to make the, t the point of your text, the point of your sermon, that's not what this is about. This is exact opposite. Instead, instead of telling you, you know, how to be a great American, how to be a great patriot, how to do this or do that. It's telling you to look at yourself as a resident alien, as actual exile in the world. And, of course, in the whole history of our country, we've done that, going all the way back to the beginning of the, the pilgrims coming and the idea of manifest destiny in the city on a hill and uh, you know, the America being this new Jerusalem kind of thing. And so this is, it isn't anything new, but right now all across America people are doing, pastors are doing what uh, Adrian Rogers did, and that's really malpractice from the pulpit, you know, because that's not what this passage says. And it's part of our problem of seeing ourselves as resident aliens. You know what a resident alien uh, is uh, the, the, the Greek word par oikos means to live alongside of and, and the idea both in the Old Testament and in the New. Old Testament uses this word in the Septuagint translation of the, the word for stranger or sojourner, ger, in the Old Testament Hebrew. But uh, in both Old Testament and the New Testament, this is talking about somebody who lives in a country not their own and so they're afforded some privileges and a little bit of protection, but they don't have any rights. 
They are not a citizen. They, that is not their country. They don't have any rights. See, it's really, really difficult for us to get a grasp on that because we do have rights in our democratic society and, and this is our country and we are the, gov the government of the people and all of that stuff. And so for us to hear Peter say this and to accept it is very difficult. And I'm going to tell you, I get that. But still, I'm still going to preach it, just like it says. That's, he is saying to them, I'm going to talk to you as, as resident aliens and as exiles, as temporary. You've got to focus on this. Now, the longer we go in our culture, and as our culture moves farther and farther away from truth and morality and biblical ideals, we will more and more feel the reality of our alien status. They already see us as aliens. I mean, they see us as out from out of space uh, in our morality. People like you who are godly people who really believe the Bible and live by its precepts and trust in Jesus and know that your home is in heaven, you are very, very weird to people who live by their, their passions, the worldly passions. And so it's really important for Peter, for them to get this before he develops the rest of the passage. Because he's going to talk about the way we live in our relation to government, the way we live and act on our job, and the way we behave in our marriages and relating to our spouses. And he says the world, the world is watching. And not all of them are going to glorify God on the day of visitation as born-again people having been persuaded by your testimony. But some of them are going to see how you react in this uncertain, these uncertain times, in these adverse circumstances, and they're going to see peace, and they're going to hear your speech as respectable and not full of crazy, conspiracy, wild-eyed ideas. They're going to see you being respectful to the president, whether you like his policies or not. I mean, who could like Nero? You know, they, they're going to see you being respectful to your boss, whether you appreciate his authority or not. They're going to see you wives honoring their husbands and husbands honoring their wives. And they, one way or another, when they watch your behavior, you're either going to reinforce the truth of the gospel, you're either going to be an illustrative apologetic for the gospel, or you're going to be an illustrative invalidation of the gospel. And right now, for us, for you in this congregation, I know that you want to honor the Lord in every relation, especially having to do with authority, in your relation to government, in your relation to your boss at work, and in relation to the way you, you treat your spouse. So let's get into this. One thought I want to add as we begin, the Apostle Paul, not Peter, but the Apostle Paul says this, from now on we no longer know any man according to the flesh, which has just been an intriguing thought. He said there was a time when he, he related to Jesus according to the flesh. In other words, before Paul was converted, he thought of Jesus as just a human 
just a huckster, someone who was a threat to him, and someone to be dealt with. And uh, so Paul says, you know, now when we interact with people, we no longer relate to them on the basis of, of, of the, the worldly ideas of self-promotion, self-protection, self-gratification, self-determination, and seeing the other person as someone who benefits them or threatens them. We no longer act that way. When we encounter a person today as Christians who know who we are, we know that we're either talking to a lost person or a saved person, someone who needs evangelism or someone who needs edification, but not someone we're not thinking sociologically and psychologically when we encounter people. We're thinking spiritual, spiritually. We're thinking about spiritual reality. So we've got to think that way about ourselves. I'm going to repeat this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... Now, just real quickly, in the Old Testament, we see Abraham and Lot and others around Abraham speaking of themselves as sojourners and exiles. We see Moses, whenever he, he left um, to, you know, to, um, when, whenever he, before he led the people out of Egypt, he identified with these people as exiles. And when they went out and wandered about, they were sojourners. And later on, the nation of Israel, when they were taken into exile, obviously saw themselves as alien residents of those countries. And even Jeremiah told them, seek the, the good of the country where you are exiles, but seek it as exiles. But even when they were in their own promised land, they still saw themselves somewhat as alien residents because God owned the land and they didn't. So I'm going to reinforce this over and over this morning because it's on the basis of this. It's under the umbrella of this idea, our getting a grip on who we are and where we are, what we're doing here. He says, on the basis of that, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. What are those passions? Well, you know, I mean, you immediately think about lust, you think about anger, you think about jealousy, you think about a spirit of competition, you think about um, all manner of symptoms. But it's more the idea of self-determination, self-promotion, self-gratification, and self-protection. These are the things, when we focus on them, they war against the soul. Jesus said as much. He said, if you try to keep your life, you try to promote yourself, protect yourself, please yourself, you know, go for gratification and, and be all about determining everything about yourself. You try to do that and you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and the gospel, you'll get it. And here's the idea of the life losing or getting it. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its savor, it's good for nothing but to be cast out and trampled under the feet of men. All American evangelicals need to understand what they are causing when they 
when they mingle together the ideas of their American citizenship and their nationalism and their patriotism and their political activism, and they mingle that together with the worship of Jesus, and on a couple of times a year they commandeer the worship service and take it away from focusing on Jesus and, and they focus on this American life. When they do that, they, they compromise the savor of the church, the identity of the church, the purpose of the church. And he, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Well, that salt is living the life and telling the story. And when you mingle in other things, you water it down, it loses its savor, and you actually cause the church, you cause the Christians to be disenfranchised and abused. He says when the salt loses its savor, it's good for nothing but to be cast out and trampled under the feet of men. And inadvertently, when we allow the gospel to be polluted with all kinds of other values, no matter how good they are, uh, when we do that, we expedite our own persecution. We bring it on ourselves, and we make um, the world hate us all the more. I'm not saying you shouldn't be involved in being a good American citizen, using all the rights and privileges to affect the culture. But what I am saying, don't bring it in here. Don't let it take the place of worshiping Jesus. Don't even have, let it have a part of worshiping Jesus. We don't share allegiance. The allegiance we have for Jesus, we don't share it with another. We don't. Even a country, we don't do that. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know, Paul says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? You know, God will take care of that. He said, uh, I, and I'm not telling you to separate yourself from the world. You, you'd have to leave the world to do that. What Peter is saying here is that we are among the unbelievers. That's where we live. That's where we go to school. That's where we work. We rub shoulders with them. And this is by the strategic design of God. This is the church dispersed all over in different nations. We are there by God's placement to live the life and to tell the story, to give the gospel about Christ making new creatures of those who believe in Him and demonstrating it every day, wherever we are, around whomever we might be around, so that they can see that the gospel is valid, that it is supernatural in its effect. And, and it makes them curious. And it makes them ask about the hope that is within us. But if they don't hear hope and see hope in peace peaceful demeanor and, and respectful uh, conversation, then they'll just think, you're just religious. The only difference between you and me is you're religious. And your religion is just a sociological, anthropological phenomenon. It doesn't have anything to do with reality. There's no real hope in it. So go away. I don't want to hear anything you've got to say. It turns me off because you're just a hypocrite. You're no different than me, is what the world would say. And we've got to show them that we are. And there's something really intriguing about an alien, you know. 
something really, really intriguing about an, an alien. They, they want to know what makes you tick. They want to know about that hope that's in you. So let's talk about how this plays out in your life. Let's talk about your civil obligation. Now let's repeat. I like that word sailor. Say it again. So I'm going to do this every time I change points. I'm going to say this again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This has to do with politics. Unfortunately, in the evangelical church today, because our conservative the conservatives didn't win the White House this time. There are many, many, many evangelicals who refuse to acknowledge that the current president is the president. They call him Biden. They will not say President Biden. Well, they, they need to read this. I mean, what about Nero? What about Claudius? How respectful were they? How kind were they? I mean, we're talking about the Roman empire that seemed to represent their cruel Pax Romana, which was oppressive and abusive. And they're told to honor the emperor. We need to read this. And we need to realize, you know, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who was, he was quite angry at me. Um, he said, um, President Trump is my president. Well, Obama wasn't his president, and, and now Biden isn't his pre president. President Biden is not his president. Um, you know, he's just, uh, you know, I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to acknowledge that he's a president. This is a preacher of the gospel. Well, really, be subject for the Lord's sake, and not for your sake, not for how you feel or what you wish had happened. Be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. And of course, Paul says the same in 1 Timothy and Titus and Romans. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So what about our citizenship? For this is the will of God, you know, for the Lord's sake. This is the will of God. Let's stop there and think about this. We are resident aliens. We are exiles. We are sojourners. We're just passing through. So, for the Lord's sake, the will of God, by doing good, we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's funny the way the Greek puts this, put to silence the ignorance. The ignorance is really loud. I was practicing this presentation when I'm driving down here. I have three hours to drive down here. And I was thinking about making a point out of that. You know, ignorance can be really loud. Put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Ignorance can get just really, really loud out there in the culture. And, and, and I'm just getting worked up. You know, I'm driving my car, you know, just right. And I think, wait a minute, am I getting loud? Yeah, you didn't get that. 
Uh, we wish that we could put to silence the foolish, the ignorance of foolish people, people that are slandering the church. You know, when they speak evil of you, he didn't say if they speak evil of you, they're going to speak evil of you. They think you're kooks. They think you're wasting your life. They think you're restrictive and oppressive and, and uh, you know, they, they think you're doing wrong in every way. And, uh, you know, Peter would say, you know, words are cheap, but your life is powerful. Live as people who are free. You are free. You, one, one commentator says this freedom is freedom from, from ignorance, freedom from darkness, freedom from foolishness. Uh, um, you know, it could be that we're free from condemnation. And, but he says, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. In other words, don't go out there and make a fool of yourself opposing the government and trying to, you know, storm the Capitol or something. Don't, don't do those kinds of crazy things because you misrepresent the Lord. He says, don't use your freedom saying, I'm doing this for Jesus. Well, take that placard out of the crowd. Take it down. Jesus didn't have anything to do with the loud, we're not going to take it anymore kind of things that Christians do. What are they thinking? Are they not reading their Bibles? Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil because that's, that's, that's what that is. But live as servants of God. And you see the juxtaposition of those ideas of freedom and servants of God. It goes all the way back to Exodus when Moses stands before Pharaoh and the, the Hebrew word for a slave is ebed. And to, to serve as a slave is abad. And um, so they were servants. They were slaves of Pharaoh. And so Moses goes in and tells, them to, tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Thus, thus says God, let my people go. Set them free from this bondage that they can go out in the wilderness and a bad me. You see, you get set free from the bondage of sin, but you become a slave of God, a slave of righteousness. There's no free agency out there, you see. So, so then he kind of puts it in order. He makes a sandwich. He says, honor everybody. When you go out into the world, everybody, treat them all like with respect. Now, I've, I have been... Uh, for most of my life, for much of my life, insecure as a Christian. And I didn't want to, I want to make sure everybody knew I'm not associated with anything sinful. So I always try to make sure everybody knows I'm virtuous. <laughs> not me. I'm righteous. I don't have anything to do with that. Well, some of that was self righteousness and sanctimonious behavior. And I realized that. I don't want anybody to Jesus being standoffish, being all uptight and defensive around sinners. One time my wife told me, she said, Jerry, you, you expect lost people to act like Christians. What's wrong with you? Come on. Um, just a few months ago, a new house was going up two lots down from us. And um, it's two lesbians. Two lesbian ladies. And uh, you know, I heard the interview of, uh, uh, what's that lady's name who wrote Hospitality Comes with a House Key? Rosario Butterfield. Rosario Butterfield. 
that book shook me. It shook me. Because she had some people that, that lived by her that weren't threatened by her, that had her in their home and ate with her and spent time with her over a year and she came to faith and now she's one of the most powerful Christians that I have ever heard in my life. Well, these two uh, lesbian people are moving in down the road from me and before, you know, I, when I was probably in the 30s or 40s, I would, you know, I wouldn't have known what to do. <laughs> you know, I don't know what to do, but this is all kinds of wrong and I've got to do something. Why don't, you know, I would have just been terrible. I would have made them hate me. And of course the Bible doesn't approve of homosexuality. But I've talked to them, tried to help them get their retaining wall built. And I've talked to them about the construction process. They've been over in our backyard. We've just talked and and I look forward to loving them. And I don't have to be angry. I don't have to act in a defensive manner toward them. You know, honor everybody. Honor the emperor, but here's the meat of it. You know, your love for the church is of utmost importance, and your fearing God is of utmost importance. On the, on the outside of it, honor everybody. Even the emperor, as cruel as he is. But now, where are you going to get really serious about loving people? is loving the church, the brotherhood, and fearing God, having a reverence from God that nothing compares to. You know, just worshiping God. Nothing, you know, thank God for your citizenship, but it doesn't, there's, it doesn't compare to that fear of God, that reverential worship of God. Those are the things that you're to do. And, it, and it's incumbent upon us to understand our resident alien status in our sojourning for us to get this. Uh, uh, many years ago, Dr. Renal Barber gave me, she was a professor of English literature, and she just, I asked her, I said, what should you read? You know, if you're reading the best authors. So she gave me at least five big, thick, anthologies of English literature, Norton and the American and different ones. And one of them had her um, shorthand notes in it. And when we had her funeral, I gave it to her best friend because she would appreciate those shorthand notes. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. But in one of them, uh, there was a, a letter from Thomas Jefferson I think it was Thomas Jefferson. It could have been Benjamin Franklin. But it was about this phenomenon of meeting a, a compatriot in a foreign country. And he said, you know, if you have this, these fellow Americans and you're just walking down the street and you see them, you might, you know, kind of kick your head back, raise your eyebrows, just acknowledge that you see them, good morning. You, you might say, how are you doing? Um, but you're just really not even giving them the time of day. But if you're in France or England and you're downtown and you see a fellow compatriot, maybe somebody you don't even like, 
for some reason, you're compelled to stop and say, Hey, what are you doing here? How are you doing? Let's have dinner tonight. You all have time to do that? You know, and he just, he, over this course of the letter, he's talking about this, this human response, this, this encountering a compatriot, not at home, but abroad. I, I, uh, one of our friends, you know, Boyd Hatchell, that's what he did with the gypsies. He'd take them from Romania to Moldova, or from Romania to Ukraine, or from Romania to Prague, and they would encounter other gypsies. And there was an intense interest there that facilitated the giving of the gospel. Just because they were somehow, even though they're travelers, they were patriots of sorts, compatriots of sorts. It's just a true phenomenon. Now, it's so important for you to see yourself as an exile and a sojourner so that you can endure without getting your feelings hurt, the rejection of the world. But on the one hand, if you get it, if you really get it that you are a sojourner and an exile, not only will you be able to accept the rejection of the world, but you will have an intense love for the church because you'll see yourself on mission together. You're not at home. You're going to be home. You look forward to being home. But you have a commonality in Christ that is incomparable to the world. So that's our civil obligation. You know, in, in the Bible, the words polis and polituma and polituo, words that we get politics from, um, they all have to do with relationships, and they're basically two. Uh, your fellow man and God. How we relate. That's our civil obligation is to be respectful toward government and to, to do good. Words are cheap. Even the gospel is cheap without the, us showing it that changes our lives. And then our relationship with God in, in loving the brotherhood and fearing God. Now let's talk about your faith at work. I'm, I'm having to go through this pretty quickly because this, for the first time in my life, I think I'm going to go over time. <laughs> okay, Selah. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, the scolios, the crooked, our, uh, let's talk about our endurance of suffering, All right, especially the endurance of unjust suffering. It's a gracious thing. In other words, it seems to give credit to God when we suffer um, unjustly, when we endure it well, when, when we uh, do good and suffer for it. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's not like you earn grace or earn his favor, but there is a sense in which he is pleased and rewards you for it. But if you're just a loud-mouthed evangelical and you're out there bringing down on your head the, your own abuse, what credit is that, he says, if you endure that patiently? You know, you're just trying to be a martyr or something, and, and it might work with men, but it just doesn't work with God. God says, ah, that's not... It's not what I'm talking about, what he would say. And 
And, and so we have in Christ the example of the real thing. It's an example of suffering righteously. And it's that to which we've been called. We're supposed to follow in His footsteps regarding unjust and unfair suffering. We're not good at this. Part of our culture makes us think that we deserve not only fair treatment, but we, people need to make sure that at the restaurant, someone who showed up after us doesn't get seated before us. <laughs> That's just how petty we are as Americans. But the Apostle Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, speaking about the church. And he said, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. You know, you know, Paul wasn't crazy. He wasn't a bad theologian. He didn't think he was atoning for anybody's sins. And, and he, he, you know, he wasn't a masochist. But he knew, and, and he's saying for us, is there is a, there is a suffering that is appointed for you. It may be just small rejections. It may be the loss of some kind of privileges or some kind of perks on your job because you're a Christian. But there is a suffering. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer some form of, of persecution because Paul says, look, it's been granted to you. What a gift. What a great gift. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him. Your faith in Christ is a gift. It's been granted to you. But also that you should suffer for His sake. Well, thanks a lot. What a great gift. It is a great gift. It's like the scripture that we read this morning out of John. If they hated the master, they'll hate you. If they don't hate you when they hate the master, you might not be reflecting him very well. Jesus' suffering was unjust, and it was voluntary, but it was ultimately victorious. The, the suffering imposed upon Jesus was absolutely unjust. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. It was voluntary. He was voluntarily vulnerable to men. That's, a, that's something to think about. See, this part of the passions of the flesh that sabotage our Christian life is this self-protection. Defending, always defending ourselves from people. What we do when we do that, you know, especially those people on the other side of the aisle of American politics, we see them as our enemies and we see ourselves as needing to defend ourselves from them. And so we really don't care to evangelize them or to pray for them. We just contend with them. But Jesus made himself vulnerable. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten and he made himself a vulnerable, especially by making himself available to God. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is a strange choice of uh, tenses there. It, it says, if you look back there, what he was doing was, he was always entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Well, God is just and He's the justifier of them who trust in Jesus. And uh, this song that I listened to by Fernando Ortega says that the harshest blow that, 
that Jesus took was the one that justice gave. God poured out his wrath on our sin that was taken on by Jesus. And yet Jesus knew all of that was going to happen. He knew that was the plan from the beginning. And he made himself vulnerable to God by making himself available to God. And this is the, these are the footsteps that we're to walk in. Well, God, if I do your will in this, what if? I mean, you could really mess up, God. You could mess up my plans for self-gratification. You could certainly mess up my plans and, and definitely would mess up my plans for self-determination. And for sure, God, my, all of my hopes for self-gratification, you know, just for settling down, the American dream, saving enough money, retiring, living by the lake, and doing this and doing that. You're going to mess all of that up if I'm really available to you, God. You're not going to let me have any fun. In fact, you're going to make me suffer. What, what's up? Well, Jesus is our example. He made himself voluntarily available to God for suffering. His suffering had vicarious and victorious purpose to it. And, but the thing is, Peter said, don't, you know, don't live according to those fleshly passions, which I think are self-determination, self-protection, self-gratification, self-glorification, self-protection. He said, if you live by those, it's going to mess up, it will war against your soul, not the part of the human being of body, soul, spirit, or body, soul, slash, spirit, but your life. The, life, the abundant life that Jesus has planned for you. It's going to work against it. It's going to war against it. But he says, you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. And if you walk in his footsteps, you may, you may well, you will suffer persecution, rejection, whatever. You will have hardship, but he's watching after your soul to see, make sure that you have abundant life. And those may seem like a paradox, but they're not contradictory. They are, they are real. Give up your life for my sake in the gospel, and you're going to get it. You're going to get it. So I want to talk to you about your domestic apologetic then. Selah. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. This has to do with that authority thing. Authority to government. Authority on the, on the job with your boss. And, and then authority uh, at home. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word by the conduct of their wives without a word, they may be one when they see your respectful and pure conduct. They're watching. They're listening. And nobody watches and listens like those in the home. And they're the ones who say, I know you. Now everybody else, you could put on this religious, religious show for everybody else, but I know you. I live with you. I see you when you wake up. I see you when you go to bed. I know you. I hear what you say when nobody else is. I know you. So funny that uh, our behavior, our good behavior, silences the loud noise of the ignorance of foolish people. 
And here it's the silence and the faithful, godly behavior of a wife that so adorns the gospel, so validates the gospel, that day by day she has a persuasive effect on her husband. It's effective evangelism at home. It's adorning the gospel domestically. She's dressing up to please God. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is dressing up to please God, but it's laying your independent... This is, ladies, this is a real matter of faith. It's laying your independent as personal aspirations on the altar. That's what it's doing. Uh, you know, I wish more mothers would get this that are enthralled by the world and wanting to pursue accomplishment and attainment. And they look right over the heads of their children and right past their husband and their home to do that. He says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and you do not fear anything that is frightening. This is to me, now I've just had this thought, Craig promised me that anything I say that's wrong, he will straighten it out. Maybe now, maybe later, but he'll straighten it out. <laughs> so. a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> but Abraham offered up Isaac on the altar in obedience to God. And all of his hopes that God would raise up a seed, a nation from his loins, were right there in that sacrifice of his son. I mean, it was a very frightening thing, but he did it. Well, women who dress up to please God and lay aside their independent aspirations, they put it on the altar, in a sense, are saying, all of my hopes for fulfillment in this world, I'm putting them right here. And I'm going to do this thing of submitting to my husband and being a, a good mother and a good wife. And, and it's a fearful thing. And we, you, when you do that, are like Sarah, not fearing anything that is frightening. And finally, husbands. Husbands need to, they need some facial recognition software. They need to have it refreshed. When they look at their wives, they need to look at them differently. I don't know if you saw that movie uh, Shadowlands with Anthony Hopkins when he played C.S. Lewis, but he had an arrangement with his wife, um, Joy. He was marrying her technically just so she could get British citizenship. And he just had a business transactional relationship with her. But when she was dying with cancer, she's laying in that bed and she said, you know, Jack, you're looking at me differently. 
And he said, what do you mean? I'm looking at you like I always look at you. She said, no, you're looking at me differently now. And he said, I don't want to lose your joy. He was looking at her differently. At this point, he was looking at her with affection, the affection of a, a husband who had a one flesh relationship, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh relationship with his wife. And he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Who knows where that goes? Is that physical? Is it psychological? Is it... I don't know. But I know this, that in the arrangement of, of authority, she is somewhat subordinated to her husband. But the husband is supposed to look at her differently, not as a subordinate, not as a servant, not as someone who is to do his bidding and be happy about it. He is to show honor to the woman. And he says you're to do that in an understanding way. When you go to Hebrews 10.24, it's the most interesting thing, and maybe I've mentioned this in a previous sermon here because it is intriguing to me, and I find myself repeating myself on things like this. But he says to, that we are to consider one another unto provocation of love and good works. He didn't say consider a technique or think about how to provoke someone to love and good works. He said, study that person. You know, just like you would your children. One child responds to discipline differently from another. You actually have to treat them a little differently. Think about your wife. What are her, as they say, love languages like? Study your wife. Live with her according to understanding. But also live with her according to understanding, because she is a fellow heir of the grace of life. That is a pregnant statement. That is just full of meaning that I haven't unpacked. But one thing I do know is the fellow heir thing there isn't talking about a subordinate position. And this is where you need to see your wife as an exile, as a sojourner, and you the same. Because you see, in heaven, according to Jesus, there will be no marriage, no giving in marriage. Uh, there, absolutely, there will be no male and female. No, there will be, you will be males if you're males and you'll be female. But there, on the status thing, the standing before God, the reward for faithfulness and living out the role that you were given on earth, there won't be any difference. And you'll look at each other as people who were on this journey together. And so if you can recognize your wife right now as a, a resident alien, an exile, and she's with you, and she's on mission with you, you won't see her as complimenting or competing with you. You'll see her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. She is every bit as much created in the image of God as you are, husbands. And he said, you've got to see it that way or your prayers will be hindered. And people are watching. A husband who does this is intriguing to the people outside the home. So I'm going to go back to this idea of the places where we see 
the resident alien, the sojourning exile in the Bible, going back to Abraham. We see it in Abraham. We see it in Moses. We see it in the nation of Israel before, during, and after they're taking the promised land. And, and let's just bring this home. Let us behave like sons of Abraham, which is what we are. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. He lived in that land of promise. But he lived there as in a foreign land, living in tents, you know, mobile home, uh, with the wheels still on it. In, with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations and whose designer and builder is God. Let's, let's, say, let's talk about Moses and the one whom God raised up to be like Moses. And let's talk about following him. Hebrews 13. Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Outside the gate, that's where they threw the bodies of the, car the carcasses of the animals that were sacrificed. He suffered outside the gate that showed his absolute rejection from the time that he was born until the time that he died. He suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Let us behave like true Israel, the Israel of God, the fullness of Him who fills all things. These all died, chapter 11, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. So on this day, which from my perspective is an is just coincidental that this is the passage that I've chosen and this is the 4th of July, I say to you, go seek after the welfare of the country in which you live. Just as Jeremiah put it in 29.7, but seek it as exiles. Seek it with humility. And, and, and seek it knowing that you are as ex exiles, you're not going to be here forever, and your home is somewhere else. We, people who want to be true believers, are growing more alien to the culture day by day. And uh, the larger percentage of the culture views us as evil, intolerant, dangerous to society evangelicals. So since society recognizes us as cultural outsiders, why do we have such 
difficulty believing what God's Word says about us, that we are cultural aliens and spiritual exiles. Why are we such approval addicts? Why do we need the culture to like us? Why can't we embrace the rejection of Jesus as our own? Why must we resist suffering for His name? Our sojourning in America is what it is by God's design. We are here by His sovereign will geographically. We are in the kingdom spiritually by His sovereign will. But we can hardly recognize other believers from other nations as our own fellow exiles and our our fellow sojourners. Somehow, as American Christians living in a democratic system as we do, we think we are unique and that this exile sojourner language just doesn't address our personal situation. But the truth of the matter is, we have been strategically scattered throughout the world to proclaim the gospel, to illustrate its power and validate its promises through the testimony of our lives. What will it take for us to embrace the Bible as our certificate of alien registration? When will we believe what it says about us? What will it take for us to lift up our eyes and long for that land and that home beyond this earth? Something other and more and profoundly different than this country. More precious, more secure, more, self, more gratifying than anything we could imagine. May the Spirit of God Help us to see who we are and what we're about. Give us the work in us, both the will and to do God's good pleasure. Would you stand and pray with me, please? Our Father, we have but a little time, just a puff of smoke. Our lives are just that way we have just a little time and we will be with you and then we will have lost a lot of opportunity to glorify you by being absolutely available to you or we we recognize that being with you in eternity that's our home so we praise you lord that we get to have this time once a week to remind ourselves of who we are and what we're about. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit, cause us to ruminate on these things throughout the day and the rest of the week and to glorify you as we have those occasions to make decisions about our behavior. May it be respectful. May we honor everyone and love everyone. May we honor the government of our country. And Lord, may we intensely fear you and love the church and see our affinity to the church as an assembly of exiles. Lord, we thank you that you are moving us toward home. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.